On a day that the country will never forget, week one in the NFL definitely had its moments as the Niners and Cowboys are in midseason form. Alabama takes a big L at home. Are they already out of the college football playoff discussion in week two? Three more weeks of the baseball season and the song remains the same for the most part when it comes to the wild card and division races. But the bigger story is the Angels wanting to trade Mike Trout. Novak Djokovic wins his 24th record grand slam while Coco Golf captures her first. And a shocking upset in MMA Saturday night as Israel Adesanya comes up small against Sean Strickland. I've got my sleeves rolled up and ready to dissect everything that has taken place in the sports universe. It is all coming up. But first, this message. J Reels here just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. It is tough not to acknowledge the horror of this day two plus decades ago, as this date is forever etched in our memories and souls. But we'll get through it with what I call the toy department of life and get into all that's going on in the world of sports, as this is the J Reels podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back, and before I begin, I'd be remiss not to reflect on all that had taken place this date. We know that this country will never forget, and I certainly won't or will never forget, only because A... It was one of the more tragic things that we've ever experienced and witnessed as a nation. And even for yours truly, I don't know if I've shared this story on the podcast before. I may have once upon a time. But when I look back on this day, and it happened on a Tuesday. So it's not actually to the day. Next year is a leap year. So it'll actually skip. It'll go to a Wednesday. But I'll never forget, it was a Tuesday morning, sunshine, not a cloud to be found. And my experience as I was heading into the office and I got off at Fulton Street and in fact I actually worked at the World Financial Center. At the time I was working as a customer service rep for Sodexo Marriott which we not only took care of the clients but also the various amounts of people that worked in the building whether it came to their catering, audiovisual, etc., And I'll never forget, as I got off the train on Fulton Street, for those who are familiar with New York City and are transplanted New Yorkers who I'm sure are well aware of how the lower end of Manhattan, how the just operation as Fulton Street, where if you go west, heading toward the former World Trade Center, and I'm sure you know it's very congested. When you get to that lower part of Manhattan, there's just... A number of streets. It's not as if you're in Midtown where you go from pretty much 1st Avenue all the way to 12th Avenue. And you could say, well, it's only 12 blocks. But that was about a mile, almost a mile and a half, I believe. Maybe even more than that off the top of my head. But anyway, I digress. As I got off of the subway and started heading west, I actually had to walk past the Twin Towers every day. And it just so happened that as I'm 
about to walk west and I look up and I see papers everywhere, almost as if it was a ticker tape parade. And then I noticed that smoke was coming out of the first tower that was hit at, what, 8.43 a.m.? Or maybe it was 8.46. And just looking at the smoke coming out, I said, man, that is a serious fire. Now, mind you, because I'm looking west, the plane that hit was coming from the north, so I didn't know that there was a big hole in the first tower that was struck. And then when I asked somebody on the street, and of course, people were milling about, not knowing what had happened. I'm sure the people that did experience either by watching or just by the sound of the plane hitting the first tower that people were just trying to wonder what the hell was going on. And when I asked somebody on the street as to what the events were taking place there in that one building, they said that a plane had struck the World Trade Center. And at that point, I knew, thankfully I have a friend who at the time was in the bureau who... His division was terrorism. And right then and there, I just knew. I said, what plane is going to hit the World Trade Center? So at that point, I started to scramble around. I didn't know what to do. And in fact, like the big idiot that I was that day, I left my cell phone charging in my apartment. And at the time, my girlfriend who had worked six blocks from where I had worked down there in the financial center... I just walked up in that direction to go to the front of the building just to see if by chance that I would bump into her. And then sure enough, 9.03, which I believe was the time of the second plane, when that hit, it sounded like a bomb went off. Something that I've never heard of in my life. And I could have been to many 4th of July fireworks spectaculars. I could have seen buildings implode where they use those explosions. But that sucker was as loud as you could possibly ever experience. And I know the roar of the people were wondering what was going on. And although I was six blocks away, I didn't have a sight line as to what the World Trade Center looked like. And obviously I saw the smoke. I didn't see the flames or when that second plane hit. Again, ingrained in our brains to watch the video and to see what had taken place. But obviously I did not see that and all I did was just wait around and hopefully and luckily at that time my girlfriend and I we did meet and at that point we just started the trek up to the Bronx to where I didn't get home till about 10 to 1 that afternoon to 9 voicemail messages as I'll never forget and that is my recollection of what took place that morning here and of course we can never forget what happened at the Pentagon, as well as what happened in Western Pennsylvania. So this day, tragic day, sad day, 22 years later. It's amazing how just the time flies as I talk about here on the podcast from time to time. And this is from a sports perspective. But when we take a look back on life and that day and the impact that it's had and just the overall sense of the feeling of the way the world was then as it is now, where anywhere you go, You're going to be videotaped. You're going to be watched. Security, whether it's in an airport, a building in Manhattan, or just even on the street. We are being followed, watched by the eye in the sky, by any and everyone who has surveillance. And that day certainly changed not only just the world forever, of course, but this country. And one more time, I would have been remiss if I didn't acknowledge that. And just to share my story, for those who maybe either care or maybe were even curious, knowing that I've lived in New York, I'm a native New Yorker, tried and true, and I actually was down in that vicinity that morning, 22 years ago. So I thought just to start off from that perspective and also to remember those who sadly and tragically transitioned on that day, not only in lower Manhattan, but also down in D.C. and western Pennsylvania. All right, now I'm going to have to pick it up and get right to it because yesterday was, in essence, the opening of the NFL season. I know we'll go back to Thursday night in a minute. And as we like to discuss here, when we get to the NFL season, especially for the next 18 weeks, as we talk about our winners and losers, and 
the theme of the day, you had your moments where the games were eh. You had some games that you just want to trim the fat. And we'll go through all the games. I'm not going to go detail by detail. But my winners and losers of the week, let's get right to it. Winner number one, let's go back to Thursday night. And for those who've listened to this podcast, I had railed against this game going back to May when the schedule came out. And then five weeks ago, that first Thursday in August, when we talked about how we were just five weeks away from the Thursday night opener and how I was going to just be aghast at why would I even watch this game? And this wasn't to knock the Lions, but I didn't know if the Lions were ready for primetime in week one. And with the Chiefs coming off of their Super Bowl victory and all of the festivities, because remember, when they won their Super Bowl, their building was about a quarter full because of the pandemic where the Texans went to play in Kansas City to open up that season. And this would have been a full celebration knowing that it would have been packed to the gills at Arrowhead, raising of the banner, all of the pomp and circumstance. And I got to give it up. They made me look foolish, the Lions that is, and the NFL schedule makers because that was a game where, all right, you may not write home about overall, But the Lions were pounding the rock on the ground. Jared Goff did just enough. He actually had a very good game. And the Chiefs were just out of sync. And as you saw throughout the course of the evening, you wonder whether or not these teams are going to concentrate a little bit more on getting their starters acclimated in the preseason just so they don't have to come out of the gate and have to pretty much start up the engines and then go and try to just piece this on the fly. Because that's what you saw there with the Chiefs there on Thursday night. But before I even get to the Chiefs, give it up for the Lions because they played well defensively. That offensive line was stout. They did whatever they could on the ground to get first downs. And you love Dan Campbell and his aggressiveness with the fake punt there early on. And then even late in the game, fourth and two. I know it was a little dubious because it was at the Chief, what was it, 45-yard line. So you were giving up a very short field knowing that you only had a one-point lead where Mahomes, with a couple of plays, and Harrison Butker, the good kicker that he is, would be able to set up for a game-winning field goal. But Campbell, he played fast and loose, and he played to win. And that's all he could ask for as a coach for a team that has been irrelevant for decades upon decades upon decades. And you had to love what he did there, although you could certainly second-guess it. But as it was, they didn't convert there on fourth and two, And then the Chiefs, in that first play, right after the stop, with about, what was it, two and change left there late in the fourth quarter, Mahomes throws a pass over the middle to Kadarius Toney, who had a nightmare of a game. And even though that ball was thrown a little bit behind Toney, which goes back to the synchronicity of maybe playing more in the preseason and not being on the same page, but that's a catch that you have to make if you're an NFL wide receiver. And Tony, again, just had butterfingers throughout the course of the night. And after that, they were not able to get themselves on track. They had a holding penalty, then a delay a game. And why did Andy Reid go for it on 4th and 25 was beyond me. He still had the two-minute warning because I believe at that point it was 2.07 left. And he had three timeouts. Maybe he didn't have confidence in his defense. But I would have punted the ball there, let the Lions earn a first down. And as it was, he probably would have thought that the Lions would have pounded the rock and it would have gotten the first down and the game would have been over. But instead of not just punting the football and giving your defense one last hurrah, he decided to go for it there. And as it was, the Lions just took three knees and the game was over. So give it up for the Lions and what they did. Just a tremendous job and certainly made yours truly look like an idiot. That's winner number one. My second winner, I'm going to give it up to the Miami Dolphins because that was an old-fashioned shootout. They played a game where you knew it was going to be high scoring. This wasn't going to be a 17-14 type of contest. And Justin Herbert, who did not have a big game, but for the Miami Dolphins, who a lot of people thought coming into the season were going to have the offensive firepower, but it was all going to be on the arm of Tua Tagovailoa and, of course, his health as well. But for him to put up 466 yards and Tyreek Hill to have 215 yards, including the game-winning touchdown there with about a minute 45 to go, That is a tremendous win for a Dolphin team that a lot of people think they could be a sleeper in the AFC. And as for the Chargers, a typical Charger late meltdown that 
understood the Dolphins are a very good offensive team and you have to tip your hat, but that is not the start that you want to get if you're a Charger fan, especially coming off of the heels of that 27-0 lead in Jacksonville to where the team just had an absolute collapse and hoping that you were going to get your season off to a good start. That was not the case there at SoFi as the Dolphins, give it up for them, go on the road and win a huge game on the arm of their quarterback. And then my last pick for my winners of the week, I'm going to pick the Packers because Jordan Love, I know he's been slaughtered from pillar to post, how this guy hasn't really acclimated even three years sitting on the bench behind Aaron Rodgers. And okay, this isn't the 85 Chicago Bear defense, but for him to have three touchdowns and put up a very good performance and and eyebrow-raising performance because who would have thought that he had it in him to have this type of game to go up against another young quarterback in Justin Fields, but to put up 38 points there at Soldier Field and for the Packers to get off to a good start, I have to give it up. And chances are we may not have many other good moments for the Packers this year. Not to say they're going to have a 6-11 type year. But if Matt LaFleur and company had a gut instinct or at least a feeling to think that tough opponent on the road, not going to be easy, but I believe in our quarterback and this would be a good starting point. It's not as if they played one of the top teams in the NFC or even in the league for that matter. But I'm sure that was a good sign for Jordan Love, for the coaching staff, and maybe even for the Packer fans to think that we may have something here with Jordan Love. So great start by him. Big win for the Pack as they go into the Windy City and get themselves off on a good foot with the division road win, which are always precious, and kudos to Green Bay. And before I transition to the losers, don't worry, because I'm sure people are thinking, Jay Reels, how can you not pick San Francisco or Dallas as the big winners of the week? Hang tight, because that's coming up. My losers, I have to start off with the Cincinnati Bengals. For them to put up only three points, and for Joe Burrow to have the worst passing day of his career what was he 14 for 31 for 82 yards he made that Brown defense out to be the Brown defense of the 80s with Hanford Dixon and Frank Minifield and guys like that because for him not to be able to get off to a good start and we saw that last year if you remember in the home opener against the Steelers where he threw five interceptions and even then they had a chance to win but as we know the extra point that would have sealed the game for the Bengals was blocked by Minka Fitzpatrick And for the Bengals to get off to another terrible start against a division opponent, this time on the road in Cleveland where they've had all sorts of nightmares, I'm not going to say it's dubious or I'm not going to say that this is going to be an omen for a long year for the Bengals because remember, they lost their second game of the year last year in Dallas, 0-2, and they were three minutes away from going to the Super Bowl. So I'm not going to, by any means, bury this team, but I could bury them for one week knowing that Burrow signed that $275 million extension, the richest contract in NFL history, and for him to put up that stinker, of course, he is going to be the butt of everyone's jokes this morning, considering he signed that contract, $219 million of that guaranteed, and for him to put up those paltry numbers, inexcusable. But I get it, you got to give the Brown defense some credit, and rightfully so, as they had put Burrow under siege all afternoon, Deshaun Watson didn't really do much, neither did the offense for that matter, other than Nick Chubb, who had a big game on the ground. And the Browns certainly showed, at least for one week, that they may mean business there, not only just in the AFC North, but as a team that could make some hay and maybe, just maybe, have some success and be a part of the AFC hierarchy when it comes to, at least from this standpoint, prior to week one, Buffalo, Kansas City, even the Cincinnati Bengals for that matter, as threats in the conference. Loser number two, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Do I even need to unpack all that took place? Now, I'm going to get to the Niners right after I talk about this. And usually I preview the Steeler game as a diehard Steeler fan last. But that performance yesterday was as putrid as you could possibly have if you're a Dynawall Steeler fan or even just a casual football fan that's watching and saying, wow, the Steelers, they put up that performance. Yes, they did. Other than one drive late in the first half where they went 95 yards. Now we know that the Niner defense put the foot off the pedal there because for the Steelers to go 95 yards and get a touchdown to make it 20-7 to and at least somewhat respectable going into the half. But what happened right after that, on the opening drive after a first down conversion, 
Christian McCaffrey goes 63 yards or 65 yards up the left sideline, 27-7, and you knew the game was over from that point. Even when it was 17-0, I knew it was over because there was no way that the Niner defense was going to give up, even at that point, 14, 17 points the rest of the way for the Steelers to come back because did you watch that offense in the first half? Prior to that 95-yard drive, they had one total yard. That's it. 36 inches was all they were able to produce up until that final drive. Just god-awful. They didn't even belong in the same field as the Niners. That's how bad the Steelers were. And they couldn't get anything going offensively. Kenny Pickett, I know the numbers look respectable. Granted, he had two interceptions. He threw one early in the game that led to a field goal. And just back to the drawing board for the Steelers because that was just as terrible of an opening day performance. And please, can we start these games back on the road? Because the Steelers, who had not had a home opening day game in forever, certainly showed their fans why they should start their games on the road for any NFL season from here on out. And yes, for whatever the reason, when they had these big opponents come into their building, let's say for week one, they always seem to not show up. I remember going way back, 1994, when the Cowboys went to Three Rivers. And I was actually in the building with my cousin JD, my former radio partner, and his brother, my other cousin Josh. And they lost 26-9, got embarrassed, nine sacks, etc. Three years later, when the Cowboys came back to Three Rivers, 37-7, which they put up the graphic there yesterday afternoon, and I remember that game well. That was August 31st of 97. Then you had the Patriots there on a Thursday night a few years back when they lost 33-3 and got embarrassed. So whenever they have these big-time opponents that they play in Week 1 and we think, all right, great, let's see where they stack up against the better teams in the NFL, they always fall flat on their face. So that's what you saw there yesterday, and that's loser number two. And then my third loser... If you thought the Steelers were awful, what were the New York Giants doing there last night? Primetime, NBC, Sunday night. We've seen this movie a thousand times before between Dallas and the Giants. And I understand because of the markets and the Cowboys, etc. But that game was over after the blocked field goal attempt. From that point on, it was game, set, match. And the Giants had a very good opening drive. They were able to move the ball. All right, they had to settle for a field goal. Fine, you get the points. Uh Uh-uh. Blocked. Taken back the other way. Touchdown before the Cowboys were able to get a field goal. And then on top of that, you had that pick six where the ball, although Barkley didn't really take a step, but he had quick possession and was hit there by Trayvon Diggs, popped up in the air, taken back to the house, and they just steamrolled over the Giants. They had no answers for the Cowboys whatsoever. And um, this is going to be a two-pronged attack because I want to talk about Dallas and also San Francisco. And I understand this is the loser segment, but I'm going to get to both of those teams right now, starting with Dallas first. The Cowboys didn't do much on offense last night. It was all predicated on their defense, and they set the tone for the game, 100%. And the Cowboys, I'm sure the Cowboy fan, they're going to be riding Stephen A. all the way to... El Paso. But it is one game. You can't get crazy. I get it that that was the worst performance that you could ever see when you lose 40 to nothing at home. That is just a flat out embarrassment. But thankfully for the Giants, it is the one game. I understand it's the division and was at home. But whatever that game plan was, similar to the Steeler game plan, you scrap it, throw it in the garbage, and you come back next week. But the Cowboys, after this one game, and you can't go crazy about one game because just like the Niner fan or even the Cowboy fan who are riding high and thinking that it's going to be a clash of the Titans for the NFC Championship game, and for the fans of the Steelers, such as myself, and the Giant fan, the plenty of them that are out there, my Uncle Mark, my boy Jimmy, and going down the line, they're thinking that it's going to be 0-17 this year. That is not going to be the case. But for the Cowboys, give it up. We do have to see more on offense, and we expect to see a lot more, I'm sure, when the time comes. But the Giants were just no match, just like the Steelers were no match for the Niners. And this is one thing I'm going to say about Brock Purdy. Let's talk about the Niners for a second. I picked this team to go to the Super Bowl. I didn't pick them to win, but I picked them to go to the Super Bowl, if you heard on my NFL preview this past Thursday. But for Brock Purdy to come out and say, yeah, I silenced some of the haters and the doubters, whatever, 
And he did do so for one week. Now, a lot of that came in the first half. I talked about the McCaffrey touchdown. And that was pretty much it because they only kicked a field goal the rest of the way. Watt had his three sacks. What else is new to show that he's the best defensive player? And I get it. Nick Bosa is your reigning defensive player of the year. He signed a big contract, of course. Highest paid defensive player in NFL history. $170 million, $122 million guaranteed. But he had one tackle and was a non-factor. And obviously he didn't need to be considering how awful the Steeler offense was. But with T.J. Watt aside... The Niner offense had their way with the Steeler defense, excuse me, and for Brock Purdy to come out and say that, and he can, and he's been nothing short of spectacular in the seven or eight games that he started, but here's the one thing I want to see with Brock Purdy, I want to see Brock Purdy in a meaningful game, let's go late in the year where they're fighting for home field, let's say against Dallas. And we all know that the one seed in each of the conferences gets the, not only the home field for the whole conference, but they get the bye week. So let's say that they're going to battle, and I don't know their schedule off the top of my head, but let's say they have a game on the road where it's against a tough opponent. I don't know when they play Philadelphia, but they do play in this year. But let's say if they're down by 10 points and there's three minutes to go in the third quarter. Let's see how he's going to perform at that point. Or let me see him down 27-20 halfway through the fourth quarter. Let me see him produce at that point. Because if the running game is neutralized by the Niners and it's going to be all on Brock Purdy, we haven't seen that yet. And until we see that so he could really show and prove his worth, then I could tell you, all right, this guy's for real. Listen, all the credit in the world for what he's done so far thousand percent but we all know that it's predicated on that run game that stout offensive line and they have a ton of weapons and we know who the players are but when we see Brock Purdy with the money on the line and the pressure where he's got to go 75 80 yards and there's four minutes to go in the game and they're down 27 20 or 27 23 that's when I want to see Brock Purdy or they're down by 10 points because you're not going to blow the Niners out but let me see that type of pressure on Brock Purdy and have him stand and deliver at that point. Keep those receipts for somewhere down the road during this regular season and especially come postseason time. All right, let me breeze through the rest of these games as we take a look here. Carolina and Bryce Young's first start had a couple of interceptions, tried to do what he can, but the Falcons were just a little bit too much as their ground game Proved to be stout. Bijan Robinson off of that screen pass who made that crazy cut as he barreled his way into the end zone. And the Falcons get off to a good start. 1-0 against a division opponent as they win 24-10 down in Atlanta. So Carolina and Bryce Young, that era has begun. So let's see where that's going to take them throughout the course of this year. As well as C.J. Stroud, who did not have a bad game statistically, but certainly was unable to get the team on track as the Ravens were able to have their way with them. Now, the Ravens didn't do much offensively either. They did get a touchdown by J.K. Dobbins, who actually tore his Achilles and is done for the year. Just a terrible break for him. He was coming back from an ACL injury, and now he's going to be put on the shelf for the entire year, so that's a tough break for the Ravens. But Baltimore, even with Lamar Jackson only throwing for 177 yards and did have a pick, but they were able to manhandle the Texans in their opener there in Baltimore. So that's number two. And then when we take a look at the young quarterbacks, same for Anthony Richardson. Stat-wise, did not have a bad game. And his team was in the game even late where they got a defensive touchdown. And I don't understand why these teams just quit when they don't hear the whistle because that's what you saw there when DeForest Buckner recovered a fumble and took it back to the house to take a 21-17 lead. And you thought Jacksonville may have been up on the ropes, but they got 10 points there in the fourth quarter. And Trevor Lawrence was able to save the day, had a good game Stat-wise for him, as they were able to win 31-21 in Indianapolis as the three rookie quarterbacks who are trying to stamp their approval and make sure that they belong as starting quarterbacks in this league. And again, it's only one game, but all come up short, not winning their first starts. But I'm sure the growing pains will just begin for those three guys as we'll monitor throughout the course of the year. As far as Tennessee-New Orleans, that was a game not to write home about. Five field goals by Tennessee, three interceptions by Ryan Tannehill, and the Saints did just enough to win the game. 
Derek Carr threw for 300 yards, and you wouldn't have thought, considering they only put up 16 points, but for the Saints, you're going to take it as they win their opener down in the Big Easy. Give it up for the Buccaneers as Baker Mayfield threw for a couple of touchdowns, and even though Kirk Cousins threw for 344, but the Vikings fall short, and a lot of people think that they could have a long year. Justin Jefferson, who seemed to have a little bit of a contract squabble with the organization, saying that it's up to them. So who knows if that could have been a distraction heading into this opening game. But for the Buccaneers, who, as we would think, are going to have a long year and a lean year at that, get themselves off on a good shot or a good track with the 20-17 win. And kudos to Baker Mayfield as he tries to resurrect his career to see what he could do down in the panhandle as the Bucs get off to a 1-0 start. You also had the Vegas Raiders win their first game. Russell Wilson trying to improve off of last year with Sean Payton as his coach were unable to win in the Mile High City but for the Raiders as we all know this could be a do or die season for Josh McDaniels and Garoppolo who had an even 200 yards and played pretty well and again not a game that you're going to go crazy or even think that with the old AFC West foes that it was going to be a barn burner but as it was it did come down to the fourth quarter to where the Raiders were able to prevail and sneak out with a win there after a Jacoby Myers touchdown. The former Patriots, Garoppolo and Myers, were able to connect there and hang on to win 17-16. And the Broncos, of course, are going to have a lot to answer to this year with the new coach and to see how Russell Wilson does. What else do we have here? Interesting game in Foxborough as the Eagles looked like they were in control early on and the Eagle offense was unable to get themselves on track. But for Mac Jones, who threw 54 passes in the game, and I'm sure that's not the recipe that Bill Belichick wanted, but Mac Jones, who tried to play the hero and bring his team back from the dead, came up just short. They had an opportunity to cut it to within three, but they missed a two-point conversion. And then late, as it looked like they were going for the go-ahead touchdown drive, the one catch that was there on the sideline was incomplete. And therefore, the comeback that the Patriots would have loved to have gotten against the defending NFC champions, did not come about. And the Eagles, all right, you're going to win games like this. And they sweated this one out. But nothing pretty, nothing really to write home about if you're an Eagle fan, but you're going to take it. You're never going to throw wins back. And the old saying, it's not about style points. A W is a W. And the Eagles were able to prevail and win in Foxborough 25-20. And then lastly... Give it up for the Rams. I picked them as an under this year. And Seattle with Geno Smith after the success that he had last year, taking his team to the playoffs and being competitive for two and a half quarters against the Niners, put up a stinker there yesterday, losing 30-13. to And I get it. You still have Matthew Stafford there who, coming off of that Super Bowl two years ago and an injury plague year last year, 334 yards, didn't get to pay dirt as far as touchdown passes, but... When you have a guy who's going to be the leader of your team by far and have that experience, even with the young team that they are and a lot of the turnover that we've seen there over the last two years, a lot of that due to the salary cap. But the Seahawks were unable to get anything going offensively and they showed that they were competitive, the Rams that is, and the Seahawks, just like the Steelers and even the Giants for that matter, certainly have to go back to the drawing board and see what they could do to get themselves back on track because that was a game that I understand it was close and the Rams were able to pull away there in the third and fourth quarter as they put up 23 unanswered points. But still, you cannot do that at home in your building. If that was in LA, it could still be deemed as inexcusable. But generally, when you have to go on the road, those are always tough games. I understand you can't say that. For a couple of teams, a la the Cowboys in particular, having to go on the road in a division. But be that as it may, the Rams, at least for one week, are in first place, tied with the Niners for that matter, as they get themselves off on a good note. And the Seahawks, again, have to scratch their heads and get themselves back and right the ship. And then lastly, my knockout pick, I had the Commanders, who themselves had to sweat out a game and I thought for a minute there that the Cardinals were going to prevail and steal a game on the road against the Commanders under new ownership and with the new quarterback there Sam Howell but thankfully they were able to survive and I keep my knockout pool for whatever that's worth not as if I got any money or anything that I'm banking on here but just for grins and giggles 
the commanders were able to come out on top as they were able to get 10 points there in the fourth quarter. Sam Howell did a little bit of this and a little bit of that, just enough for them to win the game. Not to say that Howell was a world beater by any stretch. He was, what, 18? Or excuse me, 19 for 31, 200 yards, did have a pick and a touchdown and ran for a touchdown, the game-winning one at that. As the Commanders keep pace with not only the Eagles and the Cowboys after week one to be in first place in the NFC East. And that is your NFL here for week one where it will cap off tonight and you only hope that whatever bad juju was in that giant locker room and in that building gets ushered out and do whatever it takes to power wash the stench of that game last night by the other New York team because if that's going to be an omen for what lies ahead this evening... At MetLife between the Bills and the Jets, they're going to be not only a lot of boo birds, but boy, they're going to be some antsy and very frustrated Jet fans if, for whatever the reason, they do not come out flying out of the gate, not only with a win, but just to be competitive and in the game, unlike their NFC counterpart, the Giants were there last night. And now as I turn my attention to the college circuit and a couple of games there to discuss, the first one being the Alabama Crimson Tide. And who would have thought that after two weeks of this very young and infant college football season, could we actually put the Crimson Tide out the pasture? No, it's way too soon to do that. I know I brought that up in the opening, but... With the way their schedule is going to break, and I understand LSU has to go to their building, and I know that that SEC, to navigate that, is going to be very tricky, but they certainly put themselves behind the eight ball early enough to know that they're going to have to run the table, and they can do it. But if Jalen Milrow is going to have a performance that he had a couple nights ago, anywhere along the lines of them trying to run the table to get themselves into the college football playoff, then they're not going to make it. Because it was toe-to-toe between Alabama and Texas. And remember the game was in Tuscaloosa. And the turning point there after the Longhorns got the touchdown early in the fourth quarter. And this was after the late touchdown in the third quarter by Alabama to take the lead. But all it took was three plays, 75 yards. And then Adonai Mitchell had the touchdown pass there from Quinn Ewers. And Ewers, remember last year, left the game early when Alabama went to Texas what was that, I believe week three, week four, or maybe week two as well. But then you had the interception by Milrow deep in their own territory, and that turned into a touchdown, which extended a four-point lead to 11. And even though Alabama on the next possession came roaring back to cut the lead to three, but follow that with another touchdown pass from Ewers to Adonai Mitchell, and that put the game away, and Alabama did not have an answer. And Texas got some revenge from last year because remember, that was a game that they could have easily won. They had a missed field goal, a chip shot there at the end. They also could have had a safety, which wasn't a safety there, but a lot of the Longhorn fans would say that Bryce Young was down in the end zone and that could have been two points that would have won the game for the Longhorns. So for them to go into Tuscaloosa to beat Alabama at home, which snaps all kind of streaks, non-conference and the like, And now has Nick Saban, you know, in a tizzy, trying to figure out how he's going to get his team together. And I'm sure these next few weeks, they'll get themselves back on the beam against some of the dregs of college football. But now you have to wonder whether or not Alabama is going to be a team that, as we get into mid to late October and definitely into November, will they be a team that will threaten or one of the last four standing when it comes to the college football playoff? As of right now, It's way too early to tell. I mean, so much could happen between now and then. I hope it's not the case. I do not want to see Alabama anywhere near the college football playoff. But I'll take a quick look here. They have to go to Auburn, which is not going to be easy. And we know that Auburn usually plays well against Alabama in their building. So that's one game that we can keep an eye on. LSU, they're going to go to Alabama. And they're going to, of course, think about that game last year where LSU won late down in Baton Rouge, so you would think that they're going to be chopping at the bit to try to get back at the Tigers. They have to go to Arkansas. No, excuse me. Arkansas, that game is at home, as well as Tennessee. So when we look at the schedule, really the next big game is going to be Tennessee, 
followed by LSU, back-to-back weeks. Both of the games are at home. And you have a bye that's in between that. So even if the Crimson Tide win against Tennessee, they have a week off before they play LSU the following week in their building. And then at Auburn. Those are the three games that are going to be of note for Alabama. So although way too early to tell, but they certainly started digging their grave on whether or not they're going to be one of the last four teams standing when it's all said and done. And then the other game was Colorado. And I didn't talk about them on Thursdays podcast because they were playing Nebraska and of course this wasn't Nebraska of yesteryear by any stretch but 36-22 another big performance and what's gone on in Boulder where you have celebrities flocking in to watch their teams play that their tickets are just as pricey as NFL tickets the Buffaloes Colorado are all the rage in college football as of right this second and you have to wonder whether or not that this team's going to pick up a lot of steam that this team is going to have a lot of Not only just publicity, but the spotlight is going to be on their coach, their quarterback, father and son with Dion and Shadur. And who knows how far this team could go. It certainly remains to be seen. Now, I'll take a look at their schedule to see what that's going to bode for this team as we go down down the road. But this upcoming week, they have Colorado State in their building. Who knows if Colorado State is going to be able to want to throw a wrinkle or certainly a wrench into the in-state rival that are the Buffaloes. So the Rams, let's see what they could do. But chances are, you think Colorado's going to come out of that fine. The next two weeks after that, at Oregon and USC in their building. So maybe for one more week, we could rally around the troops of the Buffalo bandwagon to see whether or not they could go 3-0 as they'll take a trip to the Pacific Northwest the following week to play the Ducks and then have to host USC in those two weeks. Let's see where they stand after five weeks in this college football season. Because even if they're 4-1, that would say a lot. Because this team, who right now is just gaining momentum and confidence and I'm sure feel that they can play with any team in the country. But after next week, we will certainly see where they stack against the teams that are above them in the college football standings. So one to keep in mind as we get past this weekend and certainly highlight that game the following week. And hopefully for them, and Dion, I don't think he's going to look at his team to say, hey, Oregon and USC are down the road, but we got a game this coming week. Because the last thing that this team needs to do or wants to do is to read their press clippings and to think that Colorado State is going to be a pushover And yes, bring on the Ducks, bring on the Trojans, we're ready for them. And then look at this one as a trap game, the quintessential trap game to just bypass the Rams and go ahead to play their other conference foes and the teams one more time that they're looking up to in the college football rankings and then have a dud and put up a stinker to then segue into those two games upcoming and who knows where the season could go from there. So something to keep in mind as we look ahead to a week three in college football, which we'll get into a little bit more come Thursday. Other than that, college football, nothing else to really dive into or discuss. So now let's segue to Major League Baseball as I break out the cleats, get the bat, and step in the batter's box to recap the latest and greatest of what's going on there. And before I even get to the playoff races, a story came out over the weekend about Mike Trout how the Angels are going to have a conversation with the 10-time All-Star, or I believe 11-time, whatever it is, and maybe even discuss a possible trade where he is still owed, ready for this, eight years and $245 million. And I believe he's, what, 32 years of age? So, Artie Marino and company, I don't know if this is a ploy to try to keep Shohei Otani because they know they're going to have to back up the truck in order to keep him. And the first thing that comes to mind in trading Mike Trout is what team is going to take that money. Now we know they're probably going to have to pay at least 50 cents on a dollar because even a team like the Dodgers, not that they need him, or maybe even a team like the San Francisco Giants, they could sure need him. I don't think they're going to pay the full contract that's remaining on Trout in order to procure services and get the town 
city, just using San Francisco as an example, a buzz to have him in the fold for the next eight years, especially with that amount of money and with his recent medical history, he is starting to break down right in front of our eyes. And I'm not even just talking about this year, but the last few years with the calf. Now he has this wrist injury. So you have to wonder whether or not with this possible discussion that's going to take place, are they going to be able to unload Trout and not even just for the contract, but also for his health. And to top it off with his age, that is going to be a David Copperfield type of magic trick for the front office, Perry Manasian, as well as Artie Moreno to, this would be monumental because A, you're not going to get a ton of prospects back because you're going to ask the team that you're going to trade him to, to take not a majority of the money, and I'm sure half may even be too much. But let's just say they're going to pay 60 cents on the dollar on his contract, where the team is going to take 40%. Now, I understand that if the team is willing to eat up a lot of money, the Angels, that is, then they could probably ask for a lot of prospects or major league-ready talent. But I don't think... If you're any GM, I don't care if you're Steve Cohen, the owner, of course, or in this case, if he's still going to be there, Billy Epler, Brian Cashman, even the Phillies, where you would think that would be his first destination, I'm sure that once this conversation is brought up, I would think that he wants to get back to the East Coast, if not Philadelphia, but we know their payroll's through the roof, and I don't know if they're going to want to put eight years of $245 million on their payroll on top of what they're paying Bryce Harper, on top of what they're paying Trey Turner, on top of what they're paying a million other players. So then, where does he go? Could he go to Baltimore? Where Baltimore would have to give up some young prospects, but I'm sure the Angelos, as cheap as they are, they're not even thinking about Mike Trout being on their team, which I think would be the perfect fit because their payroll isn't high. And I'm sure even if they worked out a deal, maybe they don't have to give up their top prospects, but they'll give up a few guys and therefore maybe not have to pay the $245 million. Let's say they pay $120 million or maybe even $100 million for that matter. Is that a deal that they'd be willing to take? I don't think so. But that would be the best place for Trout to go to a team that's on the come up, on the rise, that could maybe even go to a World Series as early as this year. But for years to come, will be... So we would think a perennial playoff team, which is where Trout would need to go at this stage of his career. But this is going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds as to what team is going to trade for him, what they're going to give up, and how much they're going to be willing to pay the remainder of that contract. So it has so many layers that you'd really have to think, is any team crazy enough to pull the trigger on bringing... What Trout has done throughout the course of the first 11 years of his career, thinking that he's going to come close to duplicating that over the final eight, or let's just say the first four years of the final eight that's left on his contract. So we shall see how that unfolds. And speaking of unfolding, the playoff chase is pretty much the same, except the Houston Astros are in first place in the AL West. Now the Astros, for whatever the reason, they are road warriors. They play well on the road. They are 45-27 and and have a record that is up amongst the best in Major League Baseball. And at home, they're just two games over, which begs the question, what is happening in their own building that they can't seem to win series or win games for that matter? Well, this weekend, they won two out of three against the Padres. No shock there. We talked about how they beat the Rangers last week, how they swept them and took over the division, although at the time they were tied with the Mariners. And the Mariners have hit the skids here after a long road trip to where they lost two out of three at City Field against the Mets, two out of three in Cincinnati, and then three out of four in Tampa, including the last three on the road trip, has the Astros in first place. And that would be enormous for this reason. I get it that the Astros have the pedigree, the DNA, etc. to know what it takes to win a World Series. But I would think to a man, knowing that they've had to scratch, claw, battle with injuries all year to Jordan Alvarez, to Jose Altuve, their pitching staff, etc., that I'm sure that they would love to have that five or six day window where they could take off, regroup, 
set up their pitching, and then go at it in a division series against whomever they play. Because I would think that they do not want to play in the wild card round. If they have to, I know they'll be raring to go. But if they have any shot, I think, of repeating as World Series champions, and of course we haven't seen a repeat champion. Think about this. We haven't seen a repeat champion in baseball. It seems like an eternity. As we know, it has been a generation. The Yankees did it in the late 90s. Because since then, we have not had a back-to-back champion in baseball since last century. So for the Astros, let's see if they can continue to keep pace. They currently have a two-game and a loss, two-and-a-half game lead over the Mariners based on how the Mariners have folded and the Rangers. They did lose that first game against the A's, but then won the back two. So they're in good shape there as far as just keeping themselves in the mix with the division as well as the wild card. But other than that, you got nothing. The AL East is pretty much status quo, but you have a big series in Baltimore. Four games where Tampa goes to Baltimore, which will be for the division. They are currently three in the loss, but four, excuse me, four in the loss, three games back. So that enormous series is going to culminate to see whether or not the Rays could overtake. And they're going to need to sweep them. Three out of four would be nice. They'll gain two games in the division. But if they're going to have any impact on the AL East race, they're going to need to sweep them. But at least they have the opportunity to do that. And that will happen starting Thursday down at Camden Yards. But the Central is over in the AL as we know. The same for the NL East and the NL West. Now the Central and the NL, the Brewers do have a four in the lost three game lead over the Cubs. Where the Reds, you can forget about them for the division, but they're still in the wild card mix. So we have that to look forward to as far as the wild card. And I'll get to that right now. The NL wild card, as we've talked about here for weeks on end, has the Cubs, where the Diamondbacks won three out of four, but the Cubs saved face by winning the final game, as the Diamondbacks did a good job there, putting themselves now in the final spot for the wild card as they leapfrogged over the Marlins. But that was a big series where they inch closer to the Cubs. They gained two games over the weekend. So maybe they have their sights set on a possible... Five seed in the NL, we will see. Now the Diamondbacks come to New York to play the Mets for four games, and they also come back later in the month to play the Yankees. So an interesting last month for the Diamondbacks as they're playing their final few series of the year in New York this late in the year. So something to keep in mind there with all the travel, and let's see if that has any impact on a young Diamondback team. But the Marlins are half game back at 74 and 69. D-backs are 75 and 69, and the Giants who played well over the weekend. They actually got a sweep knowing that the Rockies were going to come into town and they needed that sweep in the worst way. So they're just a game and a half back in the division, or excuse me, game and a half back in the wild card. And then you have the Cincinnati Reds, who are also a game and a half back, 74 and 71, Giants at 73 and 70. And that rounds out your NL wild card, while your AL wild card does have Tampa in good stead there with the fourth seed. Toronto a game ahead of the Mariners and the Mariners a half game ahead of the Texas Rangers. So we will get to see how that will shake down. As we know, Seattle and Texas, they will have a mano a mano, seven of 10 games to close out the year against one another. So we would think as of right this moment, that final wildcard spot or maybe even the division, depending on what the Astros do, will come down to those seven games between those two teams. And that's what you have with the baseball. As far as the schedule, these next three days, and these are the teams that are obviously in the running for the division or wild card. Baltimore will host St. Louis. Atlanta goes to Philadelphia this week. And Philadelphia's in good shape as far as the wild card goes, so I won't even talk about that. Here's a big series, Texas at Toronto. So if the Rangers want to make any type of hay here to get themselves back in the wild card, or at least back where they're secure and put themselves at least in the top three for the wild card, then this is the time for them to do it as they go north of the border to play the Blue Jays here this week. Yankees-Red Sox, the reason why I bring that up, the Red Sox will put the Yankees out of their misery and keep them in last place as they're just two games behind, and it's a four-game series for that matter, two games behind the Red Sox in the division, and the Yankees barely won yesterday They didn't have a hit until the 11th inning of their game yesterday against the Brewers. Could you imagine? There were no hit for 10 
in the third innings and they somehow, some way won a game 4-3 and I believe it was 13 innings. So talk about a mind-boggling season for the Yanks, especially a mind-boggling last two months and that was just cataclysmic or I should say that was just the icing on the cake when it comes to how their play has impacted them down the stretch as they just try to play out the rest of the regular season. Yes, Tampa is at Minnesota. So that's one to keep an eye on there, especially for the Rays as they try to get themselves set for a big series in Baltimore. Miami at Milwaukee, interesting series there for the Marlins as they try to keep themselves afloat with the wild card. We also have the Reds who are not playing until tomorrow. The Reds go to Detroit. I think that's a two-game series. So that's a series that I'm sure they're going to be ready to go at and try to gain some ground there in the wild card. San Francisco will host Cleveland, another team that's been put out the past year. So you got some series that we'll keep an eye on. The Cubs go to Colorado. Let's see if they could pound the Rockies, similar to what the Giants did to the Rockies over the weekend. And that's your baseball here leading into, and you have Oakland playing Houston. So let's see if Houston could continue their winning ways. That's what you have there with the baseball as we are now three weeks away from the end of the regular season or a little bit less than that. Now let me get to the tennis real quick. Congratulations to Coco Goff. She wins her first ever Grand Slam as I put on my tennis shoes and break out the tennis racket. I talked about this last Monday. This was Coco Goff's tournament to lose. It was all right in front of her and she certainly did that and then some beating Carolina Mukova as well as Arena Sabalenka there on Saturday night and she actually lost the first set before coming out and winning the final two sets. Congratulations to her, 19 years of age, the youngest to win a U.S. Open since Serena Williams did back in 1999. So hopefully with that piano off her back and finally getting her first major Grand Slam tournament under her belt, maybe now she could start a string of winning some tournaments, not necessarily back-to-back-to-back or have this big time run in her, but knowing that she got the first one, maybe a lot of the pressure she could exhale as she gets ready for the Australian, which is still not for another four months, but knowing that she has won her first ever Grand Slam, she could now at least take a little bit off of her plate and maybe have a better go around and not feel as if, oh geez, I still haven't won my first one and just put a lot more pressure on her and grip the tennis racket a little bit tighter in those moments where she absolutely had to have it and didn't. Well, now she finally has it hardware on her fireplace mantle. So congratulations to what she did here over the past two weeks and Saturday night culminating in a Grand Slam championship. And then on the polar opposite was a one Novak Djokovic who won his 24th, who tied Margaret Court all-time for Grand Slam championships. And with the tribute there to Kobe Bryant, the mama mentality and how Kobe was just a big inspiration for him And how ironic how getting that 24th championship matches the number that Kobe got in the back half of his career where it was retired, of course, by the Lakers. And Djokovic, we were hoping for that final between he and Carlos Alcaraz, which did not happen based on Daniil Medvedev and his performance there on Friday night, which was masterful, putting away Carlos Alcaraz in four sets. And even Medvedev, upon his own admission, said that out of a 1-10 to 10 scale, he played at a 12. And he certainly did that. They had that early tiebreak set that he won. And then won 6-1 in the second set before Alcaraz won in the third set. But he put him away in that final set. And Medvedev, again, probably played his best tennis. You could arguably go back to the 2021 US Open where he beat Novak Djokovic. And thwarted his quest for a calendar grand slam. Because we have not seen Medvedev perform on that level in quite some time. And maybe everything that took place there Friday night took everything out of him there yesterday afternoon out at Flushing Meadow. And maybe Djokovic in the back of his mind knew that he didn't have to worry about the young upstart Alcaraz. That just the specter of the loss there two years ago and the revenge factor was one that was too big for Medvedev to overcome as in straight sets disposed of Medvedev as if it was yesterday's newspaper and Djokovic I don't have to share his brilliance and what he's done throughout the course of his career 
when he won his French Open there a few months back and how he got his 23rd Grand Slam in his career. I said he was by far the GOAT when it comes to men's tennis. I know people who root for guys like Roger Federer or even Rafael Nadal will say otherwise, but you can't dispute what this guy's done. And I'm sure he has a few more wins in his back pocket when it comes to major tournaments. I understand Carlos Alcaraz wasn't there this time around, but who knows? Maybe if Alcaraz was there and had to come back from an 0-2 deficit Friday night, let's say if he would have won that, 20-year-old legs and exuberance, etc. may not have, would have been enough for him to outlast Djokovic there yesterday, but we'll never know about that. But kudos to Djokovic, 24th Grand Slam. And that is it for the tennis season as we have to wait till mid to late January for the Australian to start up the quote-unquote tennis season all over again. So we'll have to wait for another calendar year for that to come. And then lastly, there was an upset in MMA the other night where I didn't talk about that on Thursday because it wasn't on my radar, even though a lot of people know Israel Adesanya, a guy that is a middleweight, one of the top ranked, and arguably one of the best ever, for whatever the reason, when he caught a right by Sean Strickland there in that first round, he was out of sorts the rest of that fight. And the crazy thing about it is that there was supposed to be another opponent that was on the card, but had to back out for whatever the reason, and he actually handpicked this guy. And not to say, be careful what you wish for, but because the guy was handpicked and because the guy was a fill-in for the previous opponent, look what happened. He did not have it together. He wasn't the same guy as he was on his heels the whole night. And yes, he did give Strickland a big shot there. I believe it was in the second round and it looked like he was going to be the aggressor and maybe would have been able to turn the fight around. But then even in the fourth round, Strickland was just... He probably had his rocky moment. He knew that this was going to be his time, that he probably sensed that he had to seize that moment and get that opportunity to have him on his heels and not have Adesanya get any momentum and any type of fight in him to have the judges be in Adesanya's corner. And I don't know how controversial the judging system is in the MMA as compared to boxing. We know how boxing is as crooked as it's gone since the beginning of time. But I'm sure in the back of his mind, he probably thought that there's no way that he could let any light come down on Adesanya where he's going to be the aggressor, where he was going to take over the fight and give it up. Sean Strickland, a guy that was on nobody's radar, now may have a rematch in order with Adesanya. And we'll talk about that then, if and when that does happen. I know Dana White came out and said that, yes, we're going to look at a rematch. Who knows how long or how far down the road that's going to be. But for Adesanya, you talk about a gigantic slice of humble pie. Boy, I'm sure he hasn't slept a wink since the bout there a couple of nights ago. And I wouldn't have slept either. Maybe he even, no pun intended, slept on Strickland a little bit, even though he handpicked this guy. But for whatever the reason, maybe he took him too lightly. Maybe he knew that Strickland had some ability, but he felt in his heart that he was going to be able to overcome or at least outlast him through the course of the five-round match, but that was not the case. And now Adesanya has a lot to answer to here as a guy that a lot of people thought was probably going to just steamroll right through Strickland, but I'm sure his biggest fans have to be wondering whether or not Adesanya... Was there something missing? Was there, he had his mind on something else? Who knows? But boy, that was a disappointing match to say the least if you're a fan of Adesanya and of course the fighter himself. So we will see if a rematch is in order somewhere down the road. But boy, that was a shocking development last night in the world of MMA. So I had to bring that up and share my two cents because that was one, of course myself, and that's not saying much, but I'm sure a lot of people who follow the sport did not see coming that'll do it my good people another episode just about the books as always thank you so much for stopping by thank you so much for carving out some precious time out of your day to listen to what it is to have to say about what goes on in the world of sports and if you haven't done so just like i mentioned at the top please subscribe rate review throw me a few stars write a review i greatly appreciate it if you haven't done so also subscribe to my youtube channel as i post shorts there daily at j reels any questions comments suggestions you could do so there or at the following social media accounts, 
Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J Reels Podcast, X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. J Reels one, just a number. And the old-fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to talk about, people. It's in the blood, it's in the DNA. As I like to say, sports since birth. This is what I digest. This is what I dissect. This is what I regurgitate with nothing but passion, fire, fury, energy, with nothing but my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>